Did you watch CF1 this weekend? Uh, I didn't know. We're busy going out and doing stuff for the house move. It was a cracking race. The two Red Bulls and the two Ferraris were fighting it out constantly all the way through. And the, the Red Bull that you thought had it in the bag, the guy who started off third, um, he ended up coming in fourth. His teammate, who had just switched to Red Bull from Toro Rosso, literally, I think it was like that week, because they were talking about the controversy of the oh, no, driver switch. He didn't move. He was, de- he was demoted. Yeah, the Red Bull driver was demoted, and they pulled the young guy up from Toro Rosso, didn't they? But it was the young guy in the Red Bull car, the 18-year-old, who ended up winning. Oh, right, I see. He's the, the youngest Formula One driver to ever win. I feel like this may all be a preview of the film discussion this week in that you two were discussing a high-octane life-and-death situation on the tarmac, <laughs> and I was mentally checked out and reading about Swedish on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I think but my favorite, as it was, it was coming up the last lap, the Red Bull driver that was in fourth battled all the way through, and I mean, they were really managing their tyres by the end of it, had a, a left rear blowout, and he's running on rim, limps it around the final couple of corners, and you're like, he's just going to have to fucking scrub out. There's no way he's making it to the pit lane. He manages to eke it into the pit lane, get a new fucking tyre on, and still come forth. Did his tyre explode because uh, a war boy threw an exploding spear into it? I think he might have, yeah. I think if not, <laughs> you could definitely uh, put a graphic in there. Tuscan Raiders on the outside turn. Now, Misa, no look. Oh, now I feel sad. God damn you, Nathan, and your Phantom Menace reference. <laughs> you all knew it. How would you can't hide from what you are? <laughs> that that's a that's a horrific sequence. That you realise that you know the little guy that flies into the rock in the tunnel. Yeah, his entire family. And his wife, who'd just come from the hospital with their newborn child, was in the stands watching him as he crashed and burned. He died horribly. That's horrific. I mean, Star Wars does have quite a ridiculously high body count of anonymous stormtroopers. We're already off topic. This is this is going well. I don't know. I feel that's pretty relevant, actually. We haven't even got to the intro yet. Welcome to this week's episode of Remedial Nerding, the podcast where three nerds force each other to watch something that they really should have already seen. Your friendly neighbourhood nerds this week are Nathan, Dan and me, Paul. Remember, there's no such thing as a bad nerd. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Remedial Nerding. This week is Mad Max, definitely colon, Fury Road. Fourth and so far final instalment of the Mad Max franchise. However, I would definitely expect to see more. I think we need to include a spoiler warning for this one. I mean, this is the newest film we've ever covered. With the exception of um, Force Awakens, which we talked about before it came out. (laughs) I don't really think that counts as covered because it was just conjecture based on a two and a half minute trailer. Mostly wrong conjecture, but we've never had the time to go back and figure it out. (laughs) But that was something else I was also going to append to a spoiler warning. So, spoiler, we will be talking about Fury Road and leaving out none of the gory details. 
we also reserve the right to be massively wrong on at least one point. Someone you started listening to the podcast and they were on Facebook being super upset about how wrong we were. <laughs> yes, because David may have been, what, a couple of years out? I mean, percentage-wise, you weren't far off. It's a Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. Which of you hadn't seen it? I'd seen it before. I've ended up watching it about four times, but until I actually started watching it for this podcast, I hadn't seen it. And Nathan definitely hadn't. No, I hadn't seen it. So, what did you think? After you, Nathan. I went in with super high expectations because, um, as I think I said last week, people were saying two best films of 2015 were Force Awakens and Fury Road. And Force Awakens is in my personal pantheon of greatest films. Fury Road probably isn't. I'd rank it as good, but not amazing. So somewhat different to Mike to me, then? Yes, I think so. I thought it was awesome. Not the best film ever, but it's it's damn good. I got the impression that this one's going in gold discs on your walls. Wait, that would imply you made it. Um, <laughs> going on your DVD shelf or something. Do people still do physical media anymore? Yeah. Not personally. <laughs> Fury Road walked away with six Oscars. How many of those were technical Oscars? I don't mean that in a denigrating way, but yeah, I was going to say, because it was... They were for production and costume and lighting. Film editing, costume design, makeup and hairstyling, sound mixing, sound editing, and production design. They were also nominated for Best Motion Picture of the Year, Best Achievement in Directing, Best Achievement in Cinematography, and Best Achievement in Visual Effects. Now, before we start talking about Fury Road, I just want to talk about the Oscars here, where obviously it was up against The Revenant for Best Picture. Uh, Most people I've heard talking about The Revenant have said it's god-awful. It's an Oscar-bait film. If you've seen Wolf of Wall Street, and you know the bit where he's tripping balls, and he's just driven his car back from the country club, and he's crawling across the table to get his friend off the phone, going, Get off the phone! That is what he does for an entire film. Literally what he does. He fights a bear and then he spends the rest of the film going and eating horse liver. You're saying, in other words, it's exceptionally hard acting? Yes. It's the film equivalent of um, when chefs make a super fancy cake or something that's actually not that tasty. Yeah. It's like, well, this was very impressive, but I don't really want to eat it. Instead, I'm going to go and have a ham sandwich or something. In fact, did Revenant win Best Picture? I think it did. Certainly got Best Actor for Leo. He should not have got Best Actor. I'm sorry. I know he de- he's deserved it in previous years, but that was a pity Oscar. I got the impression... Well, I thought it was a cumulative Oscar. I'll say it a bit nicer. <laughs> it was a pity Oscar. <laughs> but Tom Hardy, who was in it, deserved Best Supporting Actor because he was fantastic in that film. I was more invested in Tom Hardy's character in The Revenant than I was in Leonardo DiCaprio's. I thought you were talking about Fury Road then because I was going to say he's, he's a supporting actor in this one too. <laughs> I was going to say... Tom this, Hardy yeah. and Fury Road. I mean, I think it's supposed to be a Mad Max film, but it's it's more it should be Imperator Furiosa Fury Road. Except that would be hard to say. It would be, <laughs> as I just proved. Yeah. Did we ever establish why she's called Furiosa? I mean, is it just it's coincidence just that name. it sounds the same as Fury Road? I think it is just her name. Yeah. I mean, she introduces herself to the clan of many mothers as Furiosa, and they refer to her as Furiosa. Oh yeah, so that implies that it was a name before. Yeah, yeah. and becoming Im- part of. Imperator as a, a rank. rank. Yeah, I did like Tom Tom Hardy. I is I got a bit of a man crush on Tom Hardy. I'll uh, I'll not lie. <laughs> he was one of my favourite actors. Very good actor. And I liked his portrayal of Max. It was very gruff. He didn't say very much at all. I, I did wonder if now they said it wasn't meant to be a continuation. It wasn't meant to be a reboot. 
You know, it was just a, a Mad Max film. But if you read the wiki and it's like, no, this is the same character. He's got the same name. He's billed with the same name. He's got the same backstory. He's also got his genitals intact. <laughs> you know the bit where they capture him and they're tattooing on his back and it just, yeah. you see it says O negative. I paused it and read it and it's basically his medical history. Ah, that's what it was. And one of the lines does say genitals intact and uh, yeah, you can't see much of it but you, that's right in the middle. I did notice that V8 was written as well so I think they put what he was captured with and it refers to him as a lone road warrior. Ah, I missed the road warrior bit. That's quite a clever throwback. I mean, the wiki, the wiki may say it's the same character, but I'm not sure I agree. He's billed as the same character. Like we were saying about last week, it might be... I mean, the the text of the film might say it's the same character, but I think it's like, if there's a reality behind that this is meant to be a story about, it feels like that may not have been the same character. Because the timeline... Well, my argument is the timeline's all messed up. It's meant to be some point after Thunderdome. And yet he's driving the car that got blown up in Road Warrior. Yeah. But he did get he did have a car after Thunderdome, didn't he? He took his car from Thunderdome. Wasn't his car pulled by camels in Thunderdome? Until it got refueled from Bartertown. Yeah, yeah, it was filled with methane. Yeah, I, I think the fact that people are talking about gasoline in this that they did not mention at all in Thunderdome implies that this is soon after the apocalypse. Whereas enough time has clearly passed to build a skull fortress. <laughs> So should we run down the uh, the synopsis for this movie? Yeah, we probably should. Mad Max on a hill. Max gets captured while he's having really creepy flashbacks in the first of what is one of many car chases. He tries to escape, finds that he can't, and then gets turned into a human blood bag. And then a two-hour-long car chase begins. That's roughly what happens? Yeah, my summary was going to be Furiosa decides to escape from Citadel, which is a death cult, I guess taking the wives of Immortan Joe with her. They get to where they were going, find it's dried up, and then say, right, let's beast mode it across the desert for 160 days. <laughs> Max says, also Max is there, Max says, better idea, let's go back to Citadel and just take it over. So then there's another hour-long car chase. Then they do, the end. To what I found interesting is a bit like we're saying, for Road Warrior, you have some goofy-looking bloke to play the guy that flies planes, and then you use him for exactly the same thing in Beyond Thunderdome, all the actors out there, do they really need to use the guy that played Toe Cutter to play Immortan Joe? It's a bit random, especially as you can't even see his face. I did wonder if they'd reused any characters. I didn't realise they reused the actor, but I did think that Immortan Joe was the same guy as the cult leader from Road Warrior. Oh, um, Lord Humongous. Yeah. Yeah, he's certainly got features in common, like the um, bellows on the back of his head. That and Road Warrior involves them driving and having a fight on a tanker, and that's what Fury Road is. Well, I think this ties in with what you're talking about, an anthology. It's all, it takes elements of all three. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you've got the guy that plays Toe Cutter. In the first one, it takes the vehicle from uh, Road Warrior. It takes the kind of control of resources from Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. yeah. And there's the weird child flashback who refers to him at one point as Papa seems to be a girl rather than a like sprog that's one of the reasons i thought it was a different character yeah yeah but then it could also be some point after thunderdome and he maybe tried to settle down again and failed it could be because one of the things in his flashback is someone saying you promised to help us which i don't think anyone has said to him previously yeah because there was three people in his flashbacks when there was the little girl the Mm. old man and the the woman so he could have Another one of the things in the flashback, though, was also the plasticine googly eyes from the yes, first film. Yes, I noticed those. <laughs> I love that. 
I thought that was a little um, Easter egg for people who have recently watched the first Mad Max film. <laughs> I would still say not enough reason to watch the first Mad Max film. No, definitely not. I would actually say two, three, and four. I would give strong recommends to all of them. Yeah, I mean, I was talking with uh, some people the other day and we were talking about rewatching Mad Max, and someone said, oh, "I haven't watched any of them," and I said, "What we said after." Road Warrior, no, skip one. Road Warrior's first three minutes tells the story quicker and better. But someone was like, no, no, number one's fantastic. You have to watch the first one. It's like, eh, maybe. No, no, you don't. I'd I'd be curious to see their argument, but I struggle to imagine that working. I couldn't sit through the first one again. Whereas this one, I could probably put on, it's a very, you can always put it on as a background movie as well, or something, because. That's how I managed to watch it four times in the last month. Just on in the background. There's extremely little dialogue in this film, especially from Max, but actually from everyone. This does actually feel like a film I could watch in Swedish and get the gist of it. Interestingly, if you read the Wikipedia article, they kind of wanted you to be able to watch it in Japanese without subtitles and understand what was going on. Yeah, I think they probably succeeded in that. Cause it's interesting looking at the, the production side of things, where they they wrote three and a half thousand frames of storyboard, mm. and there ended up being like 3,700 shots in the film. So nearly a, a shot per bit of storyboard. Yeah, and they ended up with something like 400 hours of footage, which took three months to go through. I read that because this being in the digital era, they just basically left the cameras running at all times. Just yeah. in case. Just in case. I have I have had enough time editing three 45-minute streams into one coherent whole. I couldn't imagine doing <laughs> it with 400 plus hours of video. My brain would be jelly on the floor. There was a lot. I know it was a two-hour movie, and most of it was car chase. But there was a lot of story packed in as well. Yeah, there was. Probably more story than the other three. Yeah, in a way, there's not a lot of plot, but it is quite efficient at getting stuff across. Yeah, I quite like the journey that a lot of the characters went through. So Max I went through quite a bit of a journey, hmm. with just wanting to get away and then, then ending up helping. But the one that went through the biggest journey, really, for me, was Nux. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He starts off as just another war boy who's kind of on his way out. On his half-life. Yeah, so he does everything possible to and chromes himself up to try and <laughs> take them out. out. Yeah. And then actually ends up effectively falling in love, kind of. Not necessarily yeah. romantic love, but in love with the idea of one of Joe's wives and then helping them. And the bit where they're in the back of the rig talking about his tumours on his neck. <laughs> Larry and Barry. That's it, Larry and Barry. So that's one thing I thought about this. It's kind of even more so than you saw in Fury Road with... The um the Geiger counter of the water. Are they supposed to be su- sorry Thunderdome? Yeah. Are they supposed to be suffering from kind of radiation damage as a population? I think so. Yeah. So Joe's got these kind of purebred breeders and keeps trying to have children with them, and they all end up with something wrong with them. Yeah, I think right at the very beginning, um, over the credits, there's voices and things in the background, and at one point they say they talk about their bones being diseased. So it, it, it's in them. It's and they've now got half lives. Ah, right. fucking strontium ninety. <laughs> so I think it's that they're at the point where the majority of the population is just fucked. Interestingly, uh, IMDb does doesn't list people just as extras. It gives a lot of credits, but it means that a lot of young actors now have credits as wretched person. <laughs> <laughs> That's the term they use for the general population. Who was Nux's lancer? It was Slit, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I only say that because that's a name that is credited, and I assume that was the other yeah. warboy who had a that's name. The, that, that's his answer. Ah, uh, he played William Stryker in X-Men Days of Future Past. 
Ah. And again in X-Men Apocalypse when it comes out, slash came out, depending on when this episode is. I thought he really looks like the White Orc from The Hobbit, but he's not credited as that, so he may just look like them, with his white face and weird grin. I had a question for those of you who were apparently freeze-framing freeze this film as it went along. I only freeze-framed that one bit, but go on. Uh, my question was going to be, what were the phrases that were written on the walls of the harem when Immortan Joe discovers that the the wives have escaped? Because I, I wrote down two of them. Didn't look at that bit. No. Which were, our babies will not be warlords, yeah. and who killed the world. Yes, I do remember that. Which is something that Nux shouts out as they throw him from the truck he shouts out that they didn't kill the world well it wasn't us well yeah he said i think because i went back and tried to watch that again because i didn't quite follow what happened but i think he said we weren't to blame basically meaning we were only following orders and their retort to that is so who killed the world and then kicking them out i'm just just looking now it may have been we are not things oh yeah that's right we are not things was there right here comes joe he's just opening the safe door and he goes the weird bastard that he is our babies will not be warlords who killed the world? Yeah, we are not things. Is it the one? Did it feel like a lot of this film was? I mean, despite the fact that this is an incredibly action film, by which I mean, like there's action films and then there's this film, which is what I actually wrote down in my notes was River Tam beats up everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember that's from an XKCD card uh, strip where they were saying Die Hard had twenty two percent talking scenes in it. I want a film that's a hundred percent action. Coming this summer, River Tam beats up everyone. <laughs> this was pretty much that. Yeah. It's not far off it, was it? But in a weird way, it's kind of, I thought, watching it as someone who doesn't really like action films, it was kind of a rebuke to action films. Because it seems like the answer to who killed the world is action films did. <laughs> Dudes who were super into honour and the military did. And that's why we're saying screw this and heading off into the desert in the search of the green place. There's a, an interesting concept for the wives, just going back a bit. There was meant to be many wives, but they eventually reduced it to five and decided that each wife could be represented by a single word representing the core value of the character. So they chose leader, funny, brainy, fragile and seductive. And the five wives were um, the splendid Ankarad. Ankarad. Who was, yeah, the pregnant one. She was the leader. The dag is <laughs> the funny one. The brainy one is toast the knowing. Fragile is Cheeto the Fragile, and the seductive one was Capable. The dag was the one um, that was in the early stages of pregnancy. So who was it who was talking to Nux? Do we know that? Because Nux is this solitary war boy who finds himself like on the back of the retreating war rig, or as it makes its escape, and then becomes disillusioned with the whole thing. I think that might have been Toast. Hmm. Toast the Knowing, because Cheeto was the, the one with the long, dark hair, and I think Capable was the one that got captured by joe's car at the end no it wasn't toaster knowing she's the more oh no she, toaster knowing was the one that captured by joe's car yeah i just click it. the links it was capable i will say this film passes the bechdel test which thunderdome didn't and i don't think road warrior did that's the one where they can have a conversation that isn't about men yeah so in this one there's yeah there's a scene to where they've met the the Biker grannies, as I wrote down, they've got a name, but I can't remember what it was. The biker grannies from Australia. Yeah, there's like. Uh... Sorry, sorry, hang on a second. The biker grannies from Oz. There's yeah, there's a the scene where there's like I think it's twelve women of whom seven are named in the, the script. The clan of many mothers, I think it was, wasn't it? Mm. Did you follow at all when this film was coming out? The outrage contingent. No. 
there was certain fraction of people on the internet who were super upset about this film because they considered it political correctness gone mad. Why? Because Mad Max is a supporting character. <laughs> Are these the sort of blokes that go on about lamenting the beta male? Exactly, yes. Neglecting the fact that Max has been a supporting character in basically every film. Yeah, they're the stories that Max gets involved in. Hmm. They're not necessarily Max's story. Yeah, it's the kind of people who feel that there are already far too many badass warrior women with robot arms in cinema. I had issues with her robot arm. Did you? Yeah, because the hand acted like a real hand. It was unclear to me what she could do with it. Only in it that could kind of open and close a little bit. Yeah, but when she's not, when she had her hands up when she was in the canyon, that she was moving her fingers, and it's like there's (laughs) no way that's connected to anything. There's no control mechanism there. It went up to her shoulder. And it was strapped yeah. to her chest and waist. You could easily have it being amplifying movements in your bicep and your tricep, which she still had, because it was oh, a below elbow amputation. I don't know. I had issues with it. Given their level of technology, I have issues with it. No, I, I can believe that. If it's a future apocalypse, I can imagine they've got, yeah, tense your bicep to open hand, relax it to close it. Because that's what it was doing, was opening and closing. Because all she had to Maybe. hook it on was like the uh, the bit of string for the uh, the horn. But when she was shooting it, she just kind of held it in front of her and laid the rifle on the mm. top. She didn't grab it in the hand, you know. Yeah. Hand oh, yeah. Rifle. Or laid it on Max's shoulder, which was a cool scene. That was a cool scene, yeah. <laughs> Nearly deafened the poor dude. Yeah. He was deafened a lot in this movie. He was. To be fair, he should have been dead when the car went over. <laughs> I think most people in this film should have been dead more than once. <laughs> Although, having said that, a lot of people are dead. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot a lot of, of people pe- did die, yeah. A lot of pe- well, actually, this is something I wrote down related to that. Well, I originally wrote it down related to Our Babies Will Not Be Warlords, but it fits with We Are Not Things as well, in that there's quite a few named characters among the war boys, and in general, they're more characters than generic bad guy villains generally are. Like, they're not stormtroopers, mm. even though they're painted white. No, they're not. They've got a lot more personality. And yet, the film is not shy about having them fall under wheels and get trampled. Or trampled is the wrong word, but... But then it's also not shy about doing that to a a, preg- a heavily pregnant woman. Yeah, and then have some dude cut it, cut uh, the baby out to see if it was alive or not. Incidentally, totally Max's fault <laughs> because she slipped because her leg was covered in blood from where he shot her <laughs> for very little reason. Well, I don't think he meant to shoot her. He meant it as a warning shot, but he was obviously just a very bad aim at that she point. Just, well, just clicked her. I'm yeah, maybe you know better than I do, but I don't think it's really possible to do a warning shot at close range unless you're like aiming at forty five degrees or something. Yeah, you probably want to give it a good a good aim off. Although that's the general thing in this film is that just lots of stuff when you think about it, it was like contingent. It was just kind of good luck that it worked out the way it did. Like if Hang Harrod hadn't slipped, then the pursuit would have continued and they probably wouldn't have had time to meet up with the, the biker grannies and realise they were heading into nowhere. Yeah. She didn't go under the wheels, though. She kind of landed between the wheels, and then Immortal Joe flipped the car over her. So I think it was just landing on the floor that killed her. Yeah, she didn't appear to be meat chunks. And that's because she hadn't been turned into strawberry jam. And they were pretty big wheels. They were pretty big wheels. To be honest, you could probably would, if she'd got under one of the wheels, she probably would have survived, because they're so big, the pressure would have actually been quite low. Ah, oh, must not apply logic to Hollywood films. <laughs> I didn't have many logical problems with it, though, compared to Beyond Thunderdome, which, to be clear, I still like, but there were definitely... But how did that happen? I did early on write down, that's not how that works, and I was worried I was going to do it a lot. That was about blood, by the way. Oh, yeah. If you've got a problem that means you need more blood, you're not generally otherwise ready to fight. 
(laughs) (laughs) People don't generally have transfusions and then go out and get in a scrap. They have a transfusion and then have a cup of tea and watch TV for a bit. (laughs) Then go to bed, have a lay down. One thing I think this film did particularly well is on the sort of cinematography is when the storm comes in and then it goes to night and all those sorts of things, like the changes in colour and atmosphere are really, really well done. Yeah, at times this is an extremely orange film and at times it's an extremely blue film. Yeah. I think that that was an intentional design to us, well, to make it very extreme. I think that's actually a bit of a trend. I think Michael Bay does it a lot. He has very orange and blue films. Hmm. So it feels like... The, I've heard people say this feels like an 80s film, but to me it feels very 21st century. I don't know what you guys think. No, I think it was very much a 21st century film. Hmm. For those reasons, we're really stark and the... Uh, yeah, a bit of J.J. Abrams-style lens flare and stuff like that. Ah, there we go. Right, another change of tag, having just started one topic of conversation. <laughs> go on. You know when they're driving through the, the dead ground, what was the green place? Yeah, hmm. which is how a swamp or something. Yeah, in the near ground you see some like things walking Two along guys on, on stilts. stilts. Yeah. And I thought, I recognise them from somewhere. And there's creatures that look just like that in the dark crystal. Oh, I was going to say labyrinth. <laughs> Yeah, there are some that look like that in Dark Crystal, the, the Land Striders. But I'm pretty sure that the things in Fury Road were just people on stilts. Yeah, although they also had hand stilts. That's what it was. <laughs> it wasn't. That's it was what they men on like. stilts with ghillie suits. Yeah, right. What were they doing living in a bloody swamp? That's how I interpret it as well. I thought it was just dudes in um, ghillie suits. Well, I thought it was as well, but I thought they also they look just like they. Well, you know, and the fact that they look nothing like them, they just got stills. In true history, incidentally, um, this was I think it was the in the Camargue, which is a big swamp on the mouth of the Rhone in France. That was traditional peasant wear was stilts and a big shaggy coat, hence <laughs> looking like monsters. I don't know if that was a visual inspiration for that or just coincidence. Now I want to go and watch the Dark Crystal. <laughs> Would you like to guess if I've seen the Dark Crystal or not? Get out. <laughs> don't even know what it's about I assume there's a crystal in it and it is dark yes you must have seen Labyrinth I've seen Labyrinth yes thank god for that that is my um, canonical idea of what David Bowie is like because <laughs> I haven't seen much else with him he wasn't acting <laughs> no, it was just him it was like um, but Bowfinger they just took found footage of him going about his daily business <laughs> so the Guys on stilts are listed as uh, crow fishers, unofficially called bog walkers and stilt walkers, and they're what remains of the the many mothers that stayed behind in the green place, and they're crow fishers. They, they hunt crows using kites, and they're on stilts because that's the easiest way to get across. Yeah, the uh, first few the first few Mad Max films were very definitely in Australia. I mean, Beyond Thunderdome has the Sydney skyline mm. at the end, albeit not in the greatest state of repair. And also it seems like Sydney Harbour might be empty. Um, but it is nonetheless in Australia. This kind of seems like it could be anywhere and also not the same place as it was a year ago. Quite apart yeah. from the Skull Fortresses. There's also a permanent sandstorm, lightning, hurricane or something going on. That was quite a cool scene there. I enjoyed that bit. Yeah, they drive into a tornado to try and escape a pursuing yeah. car chase. Yeah, and the guy comes in with his tracked hot rod, firing blindly... Given that he was just firing blindly, a lot of the bullets went towards them. <laughs> oh yeah, that guy, the bullet farmer. Yeah. Because that's the guy they're shooting at when they use Max's shoulder as the um, rifle rest. Yep. Yeah, shoot the uh, the spotlight out and send glass up into his eyes. 
Yeah, but his instructions are... In fact, there's a scene where I think Joe specifically says, don't shoot at the wives. And he says, yeah. that's okay, I'm just taking this one bullet. Cut to ten minutes later and he's just, as you say, blind and blindfolded, screaming at the top of his voice and firing two submachine guns straight ahead of him. <laughs> <laughs> I am the scales of justice. Yeah, traditionally justice does not have a submachine gun in both hands. <laughs> <laughs> Balanced though, the uh, guitar guy Nathan. What was your what were your feelings on Guitar Man? Uh, I think that's the point at which I sent you both the text saying this film is bananas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. However, his dual guitar slash flamethrower was an entirely working prop. It was not CGI <laughs> at all. Nice. Like, I think that's a good summary of this film. It's a film in which someone plays guitar on a flamethrower, <laughs> whilst attached to bungee straps. This actually reminds me of something I read. It was in the um, the trivia section for Beyond Thunderdome was someone saying, hey, did you notice you thought that was just saxophone on the soundtrack, but then actually there's a guy playing saxophone there. <laughs> and at the time, I did not think that was just on the soundtrack because I'm not really used to films having saxophone soundtracks nowadays. <laughs> yeah. But I, I did think the music was just the soundtrack and then a massive rig of amplifiers with the aforementioned flamethrower guitarist guy. I love the fact that you only get hit the guitar music and the, the heavy drums when that particular vehicle is close by. Yeah. I mean, they're not super strict about that, but it does imply that all that super action music is happening in what universe. <laughs> it's real-time action music. Do one thing that's interesting is if you read about the uh, the post-production visual effects work, most of it, so yes, they had to take out Charlize Theron's arm. I was going to ask about that. But most of the effects was about changing the um, the backgrounds. And, for example, the night scenes were filmed in bright daylight and then they were manipulated in post-production. So it wasn't so much... So it's more like applying a an Instagram filter to it rather than adding in sock puppet aliens. <laughs> yeah, day for night shots are kind of a, a long tradition, but originally people just put a blue filter on it and called it a day. Well, that's why you need uh, the light fantastic, you know, the light that you can see darkness by. <laughs> Apparently, the uh, the musical amplifier rig was called the Doof Wagon. Yeah, the Doof Wagon. <laughs> and the, the guitarist is referred to as the Doof Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> huh, who are you in Mad Max? I was the Doof Warrior. I am the Doof Warrior. To be fair, though, if you're an actor, this has got to be a memorable credit. I mean, maybe yeah. not if you're playing Wretched Person number three, but if, you, if someone says, I don't recognise this credit, <laughs> could you explain what it was? All you have yeah. to do is say, flamethrower guitar. Doof warrior. The flamethrower on the guitar is real and functional, controlled from a whammy bar. <laughs> like it. That must have been quite dangerous to film around during the fight scene. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I did thoroughly enjoy this movie, i got to say. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I was kind of giving the impression I didn't like it more than is true, I think, early on. When I said it deserved a lot of technical Oscars, that's because... If I was ranking it in subcategories, I would say like the craftsmanship of making the film would be a 10 out of 10. Yeah. I really liked the story and themes. Uh, not incredible, but like 8 or 9 out of 10, I would say. Actors all did a fantastic job. I mean, Tom Hardy really slipped into the role well. Charlize Theron totally stole it. Even the people who were doing relatively smaller roles, like um, I thought the guy who played Nux did a really good job. Yeah. There's the, the anecdotal story of... Tom Hardy apologising after the, the film's release to the director because he felt like because he couldn't see the director's vision and he struggled to see it, that he didn't give it his all. 
So he felt that he put in sort of a fifth halfway there sort of performance. But they say he fit the role really well. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was kind of um, suitable for the character is that he's um, gruff and reserved as opposed mm. to demonstrative in the way that Furiosa is. Uh, the, the casting choices were fantastic. I guess I would just say I like everything about the film except the weakest part of it for me was the experience of watching it. <laughs> but that's mainly because action is not your preferred genre, it, is it? It's not. This is the thing. It's kind of like the best example of something I'm not that keen on. It's the greatest omelette I've ever had. <laughs> okay, I've gone down a bit of a rabbit warren of Wikipedia and looking at Tom Hardy and his, his um, filmography. He's pre-listed 2017 Star Wars Episode Eight Stormtrooper. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel Craig was a stormtrooper. Stormtrooper was indeed. It? Yes, he was. Yeah. And when you look back at it, it's really, really, really obvious that it's him. Is it? Where? What scene is he in? This is definitely a tangent. It's the stormtrooper that Ray mind tricks into releasing her. Yeah, oh, I'm gonna have to watch this again too. And drop in his weapon. It's really obvious when you listen to him. Is it is Daniel Craig's voice? Well, it's unfortunate, but there's nothing to be done. I'm just going to have to watch Star Wars again. <laughs> oh, what a shame. Yeah. However, you have more important work to do before you watch Star Wars again, though, Nathan. Oh, yeah. Yes. As much as I've enjoyed the Mad Max franchise, and as short as the podcasts have been for the Mad Max franchise, <laughs> over a few of them, it is time. It's time. I've been looking forward to these ones for so long. Does this imply that next week's podcast is just going to be opening theme you two shouting, it was great, and me going, yeah, I liked it too. End thing. <laughs> but now we don't have to do the podcast, at least we don't have to watch the film. <laughs> no, we definitely do have to watch the film. So what was the foundation of this podcast? I guess it went, I, me saying, have you seen Firefly? You saying, no, well, that's a travesty. Have you seen Ghostbusters? No, well, that's a travesty too. That that is pretty. It. This is the second founding pillar of the podcast. But it's, yeah, it's ter- it's a turnabout play from me to Nathan. I can't believe you've never seen Ghostbusters. I'm, I'm well, devastated. Until next time, who are you gonna call? That's it for this week, peeps. Tune in next time for more remedial nerding.